The title of today's sermon is If, and that comes from our study of Paul's letter to the Colossians. Last week, we looked at these verses, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, so before your salvation, this describes the heart of the unbeliever, but then the Colossians came to faith in Christ, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So, you who were once hostile and alienated and evil, you've been reconciled by the cross and he's going to present you perfect and holy if, conditional, if indeed you continue in the faith, if indeed you continue in the, in the faith. We're going to talk about that word if. And the way you need to continue is stable and steadfast, not wavering and willy-nilly and I'm on fire this week and then I'm back in the world and no, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. And then Paul says, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Um, that phrase has troubled some. What do you mean? By, by the middle of the first century, it, ar- it had already reached South America? No. Um, the MacArthur study note says this, having reached Rome where Paul was when he wrote Colossians, it, the gospel, had reached the center of the known world. So, you know, in essence, it had made it to Rome, and it was making its way to the rest of the world. Now, um, this verse, 23, if indeed you continue, is a verse that uh, Calvinists and Arminians love to fight over. And by the way, some people don't like me using that term, Calvinists and Arminians, because it's men's theology. Well, those are just labels that rather than explaining it every time, it's kind of like the Trinity, rather than saying there is only one God, he's one in essence, but three in persons, and the second person of the Trinity is one in person and two in nature, rather than going through that every time we say the Trinity. And when it comes to to the issue of Calvinism and Arminianism, the very real fact is you're one or the other when it comes to salvation. You either believe you can lose your salvation or you believe you can't lose your salvation. Okay, So um, Arminians believe a truly saved person who's been justified and the blood of Christ has been applied to them and they're adopted into the family of God can then walk away from that and lose their salvation. A Calvinist would say, on the other hand, a truly saved, truly justified person cannot truly lose their salvation. And continuing in the faith, so by by the way, the Arminian would say, the if indeed you continue presupposes that you might not be able to continue and you can lose it. The Calvinist, on the other hand, would say you can't lose it, but if you don't continue, that just shows you never had it to begin with. Not continuing reveals that salvation was not real to begin with, okay? So um, this is not as easy as, ah, this verse proves it all. Well, you have to interpret 
this verse. Now, rather than me spending a whole sermon arguing for one side or the other, I'll tell you where I'm coming from. I believe that a truly saved, truly justified person who has been, been declared righteous in God's sight and is, is adopted into the family of God is kept by God. Okay, But let me clar- clarify some terminology that can be confusing. Because when people hear that, that a person holds that, they say, oh, so you believe in once saved, always saved, right? Now, I do not like that term, once saved, always saved. Though, technically, it's true. I would, I would want to say, once truly saved, once truly justified, once truly adopted into the kingdom of heaven, you're always saved, okay? But the reason I don't like this term is because it can lead to what theologians call easy believism. Yeah, I prayed a prayer, I walked an aisle, I went to camp, I got emotional, and I prayed the prayer, and now I'm living like the devil, there's no fruit in my life, but once saved, always saved. That phrase can give a false assurance of salvation, okay? Uh, So that's why I don't like that term. Uh, Another term that gets used is eternal security. Now, once again, I believe this is true. If you are truly saved, you have eternal security. But what this phrase doesn't do is it doesn't emphasize the need to persevere in the faith. So that's why I would prefer to use, when talking about this issue, the Reformation term, the perseverance of the saints. All right? So what, what this phrase conveys is this. Those who are truly saved will persevere with faith through many dangers, toils, and snares until the end. Those who don't persevere were never saved to begin with. Look, I caught a typo. Were never saved to be. They were never saved to begin with. Okay? Um, so the, the idea is that if you're saved, you will continue in the faith, having faith in the Savior to the end. If you don't, guess what? It was never genuine. It's not that you lost it. It's you never had it. Okay? So just two quick verses. One, John 10, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And I'm told in the Greek that this is an emphatic. They will never, ever, ever, never, ever, ever perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Now, those who believe that you can lose your salvation, what they say is, well, this is promising protection from external forces, from people snatching them out of Jesus' hand and the Father's hand. But it doesn't say anything about the sheep uh, going AWOL. And I would say, yes, it does. There's, yes, there's the picture of him holding us in his hand, and there's the promise that nobody's going to get us, he's protecting us, but there's also the promise that they will never perish. Right? Whether it's from external forces coming in or the sheep jumping 
and going AWOL, the promise is, once you're in the Father's hand, in the, in the Son's hand, He's going to protect you, and you will never perish. Okay? But what, a, what about those we know? We've seen, you know people who were not only in church, but serving in ministry, but they're no longer following Jesus. And John does address that in 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued. They would have persevered with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. They're leaving, they're departing from the faith, showed they were never saved to begin with. Now, um, in the past, I have used John Templeton as an example of how how much a, a goat can really look like a sheep. He was Billy Graham's partner, and they preached the gospel all over the world, and before he died, he wrote a book, Farewell to God. So somebody who can preach the gospel may not even have been saved from the beginning. I have a, a, a new example. Um, some of you may be familiar with Bart Ehrman. And uh, what's interesting is he is a, a liberal scholar who basically he thinks that, the, that Jesus was a true historical person, but he was not God, that by the time um, the, the New Testament was written, Uh, myths about Jesus and legends about Jesus had already crept in. So this book is entitled Jesus Before the Gospels, How the Earliest Christians Remembered, Changed, and Invented Their Stories of the Savior. Now, what's so so, uh, interesting about uh, Mr. Ehrman is he's not some from some wild liberal past. He's a graduate of Moody Bible Institute, of Wheaton Grad School, and then he went to, was it Princeton? Uh, Divinity School. Um, So he's an inside the evangelical world person, but probably one of the bigger apostates who doesn't believe the gospel anymore. Okay? So, All that to say it's possible for people to be in the camp but not to be truly saved. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to to look at three scriptural analogies that will help us understand this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Okay, These are illustrations from Scripture that I think Help us understand the concept of the perseverance of the saints. And the first one is the the picture, the story, the true story of Paul's shipwreck. When he is sailing, he's, he's a prisoner, and he's going from Caesarea to Rome on a ship full of sailors, soldiers, and prisoners. And a, a hurricane takes the ship and carries it along for, uh, for two weeks and they don't eat and they're wet and they're ready to die. Okay, Now, um, let me remind you, there's two kinds of people who don't like the phrase, the perseverance of the saints. There's one, those who think you can lose your salvation. But then there's another group of people 
who I would call them the, the once saved, always saved people, they don't like the idea that you have to persevere and show fruit. They would say you can't add any conditions to the free offer of the gospel. All you have to do is believe, and believe just once, and you're in. But to say that you need to persevere, they don't like that. They would say that if persevering in the faith is a condition of salvation, that destroys any security you can have. Okay? Now, what, what I would say is not, that doesn't destroy any security, if the promise of salvation also includes the gift of persevering faith. So now it gets down to this. Believer, is your faith yours that you work up? Or is it a supernatural, powerful gift from God that he gives you? I'm going to just go with Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. So the faith is not a weak human thing that you can exercise or reject. It's a supernatural gift from God. So my perseverance is even a gift from God. But again, the person who says, once you're saved, uh, once you believe, once saved, always saved, um, they would say that, that any condition nullifies or destroys the promise. And that's where I think the illustration from the shipwreck comes in. Right? Actually, conditions can be the means to the end of fulfilling a promise. So here's what I mean. In Acts 27, uh, they've been through this hurricane for two weeks. They all think they're going to die. Paul calls them all together. They're all dripping wet like little wet puppies. And Paul says this, For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God whom I belong, to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. So God sends an angel to say, you're going to make it to Rome. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. There's the promise of salvation, of physical salvation. The whole ship will be saved. Now, the wind blows the ship closer to an island. And the sailors realize they're going to crash into a sandbar. So they start to let down the lifeboats to escape. And Paul says, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Wait a minute, I thought you already promised that everybody would be saved. He did. And guess what? They all were saved. But the condition is you need to remain in the ship or you can't be saved. That's a contradiction. No, it's not a contradiction. The condition and the warning brings about the fulfillment of the promise. 
Okay? Here, the guaranteed end, physical salvation from shipwreck, is fulfilled by the conditional warning, remain in the ship. Back to Colossians. And you, he has now reconciled, if indeed you continue in the faith. Those who are truly saved will take that condition, that warning seriously and remain in the boat of salvation. Okay. So, so here's the evaluation question. Is your assurance of salvation based on some long past event when you prayed a prayer? Or are you continuing in the faith? Okay. Now, it's interesting... Um, Some translations say, unless these men remain in the ship, you cannot be saved. Let me move on to uh, a second analogy with the concept of remaining, and that is the vine and the branches. Jesus in John 15 says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides, ESV says abides, but the NIV, the Holman, and the NLT say remains. Whoever remains in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide or remain in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Okay, So picture uh, a vineyard. There's a vineyard down the road right here. Okay. And there's, they have the, the branches, the, the vine, elevated on, a, on stakes. And off of the vine are branches. How do you know if a branch is alive or dead? If it's alive, it's going to produce grapes. If it's dead, there's no fruit, and it's going to shrivel up, and they're going to break that off, and they're going to burn that in the brush pile. Okay? Now, every analogy breaks down at some point, even biblical analogies. Because here we have, you know, in essence, an inanimate object representing people. Okay? But what's the main concept? The branch needs to be attached to the vine. Now, picture a, a branch with hands or with a will. And the branch decides to cling to the vine. Okay, so that's where, where the, 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 the analogy kind of breaks down because branches don't do that. Either you're, either you're in or you're out, right? But humans, you can either by faith cling to Christ or not. Right? So, so the analogy is cling to Christ by faith and he will produce the fruit that assures you that you're attached to the vine. Okay. Now, here is where the pastor is supposed to dump all the spiritual disciplines on you. To say, well, cling to the vine. You need to be uh, in the word, and you need to, to pray more, and you need to come to Bible study more, and you need to do all these things. So people go, oh, I don't want to think I'm not saved. So and then they add the whole list of things, and they do all those things, thinking that that's what saves them. 
when it's possible to do all those things and still not be in the vine. Okay? Now, the, the key is you remain through faith. Now, all those things, all those spiritual disciplines are great to the degree that they help you, by faith, cling to Christ. So, let me give you a concept that I, I think helps. Luther really emphasized this. He talked about the law-gospel tension in Scripture. Let me define those terms. Law, at least in Luther's mind, was anything in Scripture that God demands of you. Could be the Ten Commandments, could be the Sermon on the Mount, could, could even be the fruit of the Spirit. Right? It's what God expects you to do. Gospel, on the other hand, it doesn't just mean Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, believe in him. Gospel is a broader term in Luther's mind that simply means what he graciously gives to you. So here's the key to law gospel thinking. Allow yourself to be convicted by law. Don't resist and go, oh, well, I'm not that bad. Don't read through the Sermon on the Mount and go, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good here, here, here. I'm better than so-and-so. No. Allow yourself to be devastated by the law. So then your only hope is the gospel. And by faith, you trust in Christ. That's clinging to the vine. See, the Pharisee won't do that. The Pharisee says, I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. I'm better than you. But I read my Bible. I go to church. I do all the spiritual disciplines. That doesn't, you're not in the vine. You're just reading for self-improvement. The person in the vine says, I'm a miserable failure, but my only hope is Christ. And you say, well, where's any room for improvement? When you're truly open to the law convicting you and you're truly repenting and you're truly clinging to the vine, you know what you're going to notice? Improvement over time. Okay? And by the way, um, this is why I preach the gospel every week. Some people think that's too basic to go back to the cross every week. They, they say, well, you get saved at the cross. Now let's move on to more, uh, uh, more mature things. And the whole list of things gets... No, you need the gospel again and again and again. First Corinthians, Paul says, I, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached, past tense to you, which you received, past tense, and in which you stand... But now let's move on to better things. No. And by which you are being saved if you hold fast, if you continue right, to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. I'm just reminding you of the gospel that where you got started, and you need to hold on to it. You need to cling to it. It's what, what, what gives you assurance of salvation. It's what makes you mature. Right? So first analogy, the shipwreck. A condition does not nullify a promise. Second analogy, the vine and the branches cling to Christ by faith. How? 
Don't think you're that good. Realize you're a sinner in need of the Savior. Embrace him by faith. Okay? Then let me, let me give you this last analogy. And this is the Old Testament story of Gideon. Now, Gideon is a judge. So the, the Israelites, they were delivered from Egypt through the desert. They conquered the promised land under Joshua. Joshua dies, and the next generation are miserable failures. Lots of idolatry and disobedience. So God allows various uh, enemies to trample on Israel. But he raises up judges or leaders to deliver them. And in this case, the Midianites were trampling on the Israelites. So God raises up uh, a leader named Gideon. Now, uh, sometimes when we think of biblical heroes, we think of like these buff guys who are like awesome. Um, Gideon was a little weakling. He even admits it. But God appears to Gideon and says, you are going to deliver Israel. So here's the promise. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. I'm just this little weakling in a weak little tribe. Why me? And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. There's the promise. I will be with you. I will give you the power you need. I will give you the victory. Okay? So there's the promise. Now, um, Gideon asks for a sign. Now, what's the sign that God gives him? The first sign. Well, you're all thinking the fleece, right? The fleece is actually the second sign and the third sign. The, f- the first sign is this. The angel of the Lord, who's Jesus, appears to Gideon and says, make a meal. So he kills an animal and he bakes some bread and he puts it on a rock. Right? So Gideon says, give me a sign. So here's the sign. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand, and he touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. Burnt offering right there. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. That's a pretty good sign. Right? Vanishing dinner, vanishing angel. So you would think Gideon would go, all right, let's do this thing. No, not, he's not ready. So he says, could, hate, to, hate to ask, could, could you give me another sign? In fact, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay out the conditions for you, God. He says, I have this little fleece, this little sheep fleece, and I'm going to lay it out overnight. And if this is really going to happen, Lord, could you make the fleece wet from the dew, but the ground 
dry in the morning. So God says, all right. And the next morning he gets up and the fleece is, is wet. He wrings it out and the, the ground is all dry. Now, here, here's where this whole thing about laying out fleeces and giving God tests to show you the future fails. Gideon thinks to himself, and I'm putting thoughts in his mind, but maybe he's thinking to himself, well, maybe the fleece retains water and the ground dry, the sun dried the ground right away. Maybe it's a scientific thing. So I have a third test, God. This time, I'm going to lay out the fleece and in the morning make the ground wet, but the fleece dry. And God says, all right. And in the morning, the, the fleece is dry and the ground is wet. But the problem with laying, uh, you know, asking God to jump through your hoops is you wonder if you maybe should have added one more hoop or was it just a coincidence? So be careful. I, I don't know that Gideon's fleece laying is an example that we are to follow, but in this case, God condescends to it and he, he plays, all right? So finally, Gideon is ready to fight the Midianites. Now, here's the problem. There's 120,000 Midianite warriors. Gideon blows the trumpet, and how many Israelites gather? 32,000. So they're outnumbered four times to one. Bless you. Um, Four times to one. So then God says, hey, Tell, tell the Israelites, Gideon, if anybody's afraid, they can go home. So Gideon says, you know, they're all lined up. If any of you is afraid, you can go home. 22,000 turn and they go home. Leaving 10,000 guys. God says to Gideon, it's too many to win. Too many to win? Yeah, we need less numbers. We're going to thin out the troops. And then he does the thing where take them down to the brook, and if they lap like a dog or if they cup their hands, the cuppers and the lappers, and it turns out there's only 300 guys left. 300 versus 120,000 Midianites. Who wins? Yeah, God, God wins, the 300. Right? But here's what I want you to see. We already saw the promise, right? And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. They go to war. But in the middle of the war, here's what I want you to see. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and the 300 men who were with him, here's what I want you to see, exhausted yet pursuing. They're going to win. The promise guaranteed victory. But in the middle of the persevering of of following through on the promise, you can be exhausted. Yet they took one more step. So I think the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints can challenge all people on the spectrum. Some are lazy 
And we need to be challenged to get in the war. Right? The, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of perseverance of the saints is not kick back and everything's going to be easy. There's a persevering. There's blood, sweat, and tears in the Christian life. Right? So some of us need to get in the war. On the other hand, some of you are right here. You're exhausted. And you don't know if you can take one more step. And the beauty of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is take another step. You can, you, you can go. You can do it. Because it's Him working through you. Let me end with this in Colossians 1, 20, 29, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. But I'm exhausted, yep. And he provides the energy to take the next step. All right, let me pray for us. Lord, I want to pray for those in the room. You know everyone's heart. You know where they're at. You know whether they need to be encouraged, to not live for comfort, or whether they're exhausted and they just need encouragement to know that your promise will see them through. So Lord, I pray that you would give people the rest they need. I pray you would give people the energy they need. And Lord, we thank you that it's all because of the cross. It's the cross that purchased our salvation. It's the cross that promises us perseverance. So Lord, we thank you for the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.